trust that you have had a good week. <clears throat> it's been full uh, on my end, but it's been, it's been blessed. You know, sometimes weeks don't go exactly as planned. Sometimes there's interruptions, and I kind of felt that way this week. Every time I'd get a block of time to study, I'd get about a half an hour, and then something would come up, an interruption or whatever. And <clears throat> so if this message is disjointed, it's because I've had a half an hour here and a half an hour there, and I did get a couple hours yesterday to kind of work through it all in one sitting. But I told Diana, I don't even know if it makes sense, because I'm working on it at all these different times. So I guess I'll let you guys be the judge of that, and we'll see how it all comes together. But we've been in Isaiah chapter 6 for the last four Sundays, and uh, we're in a series entitled Preparation for Service. And we've been looking at this first section, uh, reminding us that we need to have a big view of God before we can attempt a great work for God. Not that our goal in life is to do great things for God, but it is to do works for God and for God to make those things great through his power. But to do that, we've got to have a big view of God. And we've seen that here in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read those first four verses again and, and let's read them out loud. I think it's powerful when we read the word of scripture together. And here's what Isaiah says in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high. Sorry, I goofed it up. I always mess that up. <clears throat> I get the order wrong. Let's try it one more time from the top. Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. We've been looking at this passage, and we've seen that our God is still on the throne. Aren't you thankful for that? Well, we've got leaders in this world in lots of different places that we may not wish were on the throne of our country or other countries, but God is still over all of them. He's on the throne. He's still high and lifted up. He's still sovereign and omnipotent. He's still holy and glorious. Folks, God is still God. And we need to keep that in mind. I've had a children's song running through my head this whole time I've been working on this series. And I've been thinking, Lord, why is this running through my mind? And it's the focal point for today's message. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Let's sing it. Diane, you're right up front here. Can we do that impromptu on a Sunday morning? Do you guys remember this song? I learned it when I was a child. I taught it to my kids. I've used it in children's ministry through the years, and uh, it'll be better with a piano. Let's give it a shot. Go ahead. Here we go. It's in your bulletin if you need the words. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you and for me and for us as a church. We're going to take that concept as we work through the message, and it's going to be just in a couple places, and I'm going to start that line. I'm going to say, my God is so big, and I'm going to point to you, and you're going to answer out loud, there's nothing my God cannot do. Let's practice it once here to see if we're all on the same page. My God is so big, 
Yeah, that's about a 57%. Let's do a little better. Here we go. My God is so big, there's nothing my God. Okay, I'll direct you. Once we get into the flow, you'll see where it's coming, and I think it'll be just a good reminder as we work through this passage. A children's song. A simple song. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed that sometimes the theology in children's songs tests my faith a little bit. Children trust. God's wired them that way. As adults, we're kind of prone to be skeptical, aren't we? We question things. Where kids don't, they just take it at face value. One of my earliest memories of, of growing up, I, I can remember some, as I get older, it's not a big deal in my junior years and all of that, but I, I remember this memory of, of a, as a child, my dad sitting me on top of the refrigerator. Parents, have you ever done this with your kids? And he's like, jump off. I'll catch you. And, you know, I wasn't real smart at two years old or whatever it was. And, but I had childlike faith. And I jumped off. And guess what? I banged my head. No, he caught me. He caught me. And I had no doubt in my mind that he would. I knew my dad was big enough to carry me and to catch me if I jumped off that fridge. As, as we had children, and as they got a little bit older and out of the baby phase, um, I remember taking them and throwing them up in the air, and their arms splay out, and they squeal with delight, and you catch them when they come down, right? And, and my one daughter may have a little bit of an abnormal fear of heights because of some of that that I was a little, little carried away with, maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but my kids knew that I was big enough to catch them. They didn't even, it didn't even cross their minds that I might drop them. And folks, we have a heavenly Father that is just as big. And he's got us the same way we had our children in those situations. He's big. There's nothing God cannot do. There's nothing that is impossible for him. What are the impossibilities in your life right now? Do you have them? I do. I think all of us do. Maybe there's something you've been praying for, but it just isn't coming about. Maybe there's someone you're praying for that's still rejecting the gospel. Maybe there's a fractured relationship that just isn't healing or a financial strain that, instead of getting better, just seems to get worse. So I ask you, in the, in the realm of your impossibilities, how big is your God? Do you really believe this song, There's Nothing My God Cannot Do? Do we have seeming impossibilities here as a church? I think that's probably a fair statement. We've been working through this transition. We've been evaluating a lot of things. We've been trying to be honest with ourselves as a church as well as individually, and that's the next section of our, of our series, not just looking up but looking in. And if we're honest, as a congregation, we're getting older. I was talking with Pastor Pestle at, at the funeral, and he was encouraging me with his college trip, and then he looked at me and he goes, that's a young man's game, and you're not so much anymore. I said, well, thanks, brother, for the encouragement. I appreciate that. Just being honest, um, there's some truth there. But as we get older, we get more tired, don't we? If you look out over our congregation, there are age groups that are obviously lacking. We're missing a generation. We're kind of missing two. And as we get older, the hope of drawing in younger families begins to wane because families come and they visit, but they see no kids, and so they leave. No one wants to be the first one. Natural outreach is somewhat limited. We don't have the same involvement with work and with schools. So we don't have those natural connections to reach out. And in regards to all that, these impossibilities, we can get discouraged and we can begin to wonder if our problems have any answers. Is God big enough? And so I ask again, how big is our God? 
Do we really believe that there's nothing my God cannot do? I'm convinced that there's reason for optimism. I don't think we need to throw our hands up in the air in despair and adopt this pessimistic what-can-we-do attitude. We need to remember that my God is so big. Yeah, that was like 12%. All right, thank you for those that jumped in. All right, we'll get better. We need to remember the view of God that Isaiah gave us in chapter 6. On the throne, high and lifted up. We need to remember that the God he served is the same God that we worship today. He has not changed. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. And folks, this God who created the world out of nothing has a long history of accomplishing the impossible. Do you believe that? Do you read that in the scriptures? Do you see that as you read? I do. Impossible situations merely provide opportunities for God to display his power. If God worked in ways that we could understand, what benefit is there? How does that show that he's God? But when he works in ways when we can't do anything, then we see his power. So today, as we wrap up this first point in our series, this upward look, I want us to be reminded just how big of a God we serve. As I've been working through these series of messages, I've looked at a lot of scriptures, and, and several have come to my mind that, that point out the fact that God is a can-do kind of a God. <laughs> it's worded differently in different passages. Sometimes it's a rhetorical question. Sometimes God just makes a statement. But things like, nothing is impossible with God. Is anything too hard for God? My God can do everything. These statements jumped out at me off the page, and I'd like to look at several of those today. Six specific reminders from Scripture that our God is indeed a big God. Turn with me first to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. Genesis chapter 12. And those of you that have been in the adult Sunday school class, what are we, who are, what's the character that we're dealing with starting in Genesis 12? Abraham, right? The story of Abraham. And we've seen that God promised Abraham a son. Look back with me in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. He says to Abraham, I'm going to send you out of your country, out of your homeland. I'm going to take you to a new land. And in verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, you're going to be a great nation. And so over the next 25 years, he reminds Abraham of this promise five different times. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. It's just five verses apart in Scripture, but there's a lot of mileage between these verses. (laughs) A lot's happened. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Did you catch that? Unto thy seed, your children, you're going to have a son. Look with me in chapter 13. And verse 15. And God tells Abraham, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And again, we're reading these in just a matter of seconds apart. These are years apart in Abraham's life. This is over the course of 25 years. Look down with me at chapter 15. Let's read, picking it up in verse 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. What's Abraham saying? Lord, you're not answering this. It's not working out. I've got a really good servant. Maybe you want to use him and, and let him be the heir. And, and we'll, let's, let's, kind of, let's work this out. We can find a human solution to this divine problem that just doesn't seem to be happening. And what does God say? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him in verse 4. This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Now look towards the heaven 
And he points him to the stars and said, you're going to have so many children, it's going to be as the stars of heaven. Well, this is taking a long time, and Abraham mentions it's here. Now he begins to take matters into his own hands. And we see over in chapter 17, actually verse 16, chapter 16, he takes Hagar. You know the story. And he has a son from Hagar named Ishmael. And in chapter 17, uh, when Abram is 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. You're going to have more children. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him and says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. Thou shalt be a father of many nations. And he goes on to explain, it's not going to come through Ishmael. I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. And he makes that promise again. And that brings us to chapter 18 where we'll find this phrase that jumped out at me. God appears to him as a theophany. And Abraham prepares a meal, and he's interacting with with God, and I believe an angel or two there at at the same time. And in verse 10, he said, I will certainly return unto thee. This is God talking. According to to the time of life, and Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which is behind him. Now catch this. Abraham and Sarah were old. And well stricken in age. That's a very poetic way of saying they were geezers. Okay? They were old. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, I will of a surety bear a child which am old. You can understand the incredulity in Sarah's voice, right? It makes sense. This isn't going to happen. Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? God gives this rhetorical question to Abraham. And it's a rhetorical question, so it doesn't need an answer. But look over in chapter 21. Look over in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. At the set time of which God had spoken to him. God answered. He did exactly what he told he would do. He did it when he said he would do it, as he said he would do it, exactly like he said he would. And so here's my question. Can the God who supernaturally caused this elderly couple to conceive a child, is he big enough to bring families into this church body? I believe he is. Is he big enough to reward our evangelistic efforts and see folks born again as we go out and share the gospel? Folks, I believe that he is. Because my God is so big, there's nothing my God cannot do. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. Book of Numbers chapter 11. We saw first that God has power over the limitations of age. Secondly, he has power over his creation. He can provide I mean, Numbers 11, I can't give you the whole context, but Israel is complaining again. Surprise, surprise. Uh, they were known for that. They're coming out of Egypt, and they're, you know, they're excited that they got out of Egypt, but now they're complaining because they've had manna this whole time. And it says in verse 5, they remembered the fish that they had in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. They forgot about the slavery, but they sure remember the food that they enjoyed while they were there enslaved. And it gets God's attention, and God is angry with them, and Moses is angry with them. And God says, all right, you want food to eat, you want meat. Look down in verse 18. God says to Moses, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow and ye shall eat flesh. 
For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? It was, it, for it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. And ye will not just eat one day, nor two days. <laughs> I think God, they got God's attention. Nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty, but a whole month. Until it comes out your nostrils. <laughs> God says, You want flesh? I'll give you flesh. Moses is hearing this. Notice Moses' response to what God says. Does, does Moses see a possibility or an impossibility? An impossibility. Look what he says. Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen. What does that mean? They numbered the people. 600,000 that are 21 years and older. Now, how many women and children and under 21 is there going to be? Estimates are over 2 million people in this, in this congregation. And so he's asking a respectable question. Lord, how in the world are we going to provide for them? How are you going to do this? And he says, how am I going to give them flesh? <laughs> Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them? If we killed all the animals in our flocks, it's not going to be enough to feed this many people for a month. Lord, you've seen how those teenagers eat. There's just no way. And then he goes on to say, nor shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them. If we brought all the fish in, God, imagine how much steak this is. Or if we go cheap, that's a lot of hot dogs. Lord, that's a lot of fish sticks. How in the world are we going to feed this many people for an entire month? He sees an impossibility. But I love God's response. Look down in verse 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Did you catch this when we read through this passage about a, a week or two ago? Is the Lord's hand waxed short? What's he saying? Have I suddenly got old and feeble? I'm the same God that brought you out of Egypt. And if you look at the references I gave you, catch those another time. But in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, it says, He brought them out with signs and with wonders. He brought them out with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. And now he says, is my hand suddenly waxed short? Is it no longer powerful? You guys are getting older. And, and Moses, even his strength is still good at, at 80 years old. And God's like, am I too old to do this? Have I suddenly gotten weak? Is there not a way that I can do this for you? And so he brings in quail. Look at verse 31. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. He brought quail in in droves, boatloads of quail, two cubits deep. How, a cubit is about 18 inches, right? From the end of my finger to my elbow, 18 inches. So 36 inches high, quail all around the camp as far as the eye could see. And people are going nuts. They're grabbing quail. They're processing quail. They're drying quail. They're trying to get this. They're feeding and feasting. And he had so much quail until they came out of their noses till they were sick of it. And that's not my point. <laughs> my point is this. Folks, God is a big God. And my question for us is this, is can the God who supernaturally brought the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, over two million strong, who fed them for years with manna every morning in the wilderness, who provided water not only for them but also for their herds, and now miraculously brought enough quail to feed the entire congregation for a month, can this God not provide for us here in Columbia Falls? Folks, I think he can. Is God's hand waxed short or is it still a mighty hand and a stretched out the answer to that question is a resounding yes he is still able because my God is so big there's nothing my God cannot do turn with me to Job chapter 42 
Job chapter 42. Most of you have been in church your whole lives. You know this story. I'm not going to go into it in a lot of detail. But Job has been tested by God through a terrible trial from Satan. <laughs> what a combination. Satan's the one that's at work. God's allowing it to happen. And it's gone on for a long period of time, and Job has been searching for answers. And all that he hears repeated are the arguments of his friends. <laughs> that might be where the statement comes from with friends like these who needs enemies. I'm not sure if that's the, 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 where that one came from. Somebody can do some research on that and let me know. But it certainly fits. And for the first 38 chapters of this book, God has been silent. He's allowing Job to sit there in his consternation and wrestle with the reasons for his suffering and wrestle with the reasons for God's silence. On the surface, it appears like maybe God's being a little bit, little bit mean. God, why not love him enough to answer his questions? But he's allowing Job to come to the end of himself. I think we might look at this passage again in more detail. It's very similar to Isaiah in the throne room of heaven where he comes to the end of himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. Well, Job is struggling, and he begins crying out to God for answers, wishing and almost demanding a face-to-face with his God. And finally, in chapter 9, God responds, <laughs> and boy, does God respond. As you read through that passage, it's amazing. He enters the scene of suffering in a whirlwind. He arrives in a tornado. Folks, that's an entrance. <laughs> he shows up, and there's no mistake that God showed up. And now he begins to question Job. He interrogates him for four chapters with question after question after question. Where were you when I did this? How did this work? Can you understand this? Can you make this happen? And Job doesn't have answers for any of these questions. But these questions leave no doubt about the incredible power and wisdom of God as he rules and he reigns over his creation. And so we see Job at the end of God's monologue here in chapter 42. Look, at, look with me in verse 1. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. No thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare that one to me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. Verse 2, you can do everything. And he says, I know that. The next phrase says, no thought can be withholden from you. That's, I don't think that's the best translation. I think the, the idea here is nothing you purpose to do can be thwarted. That's the picture of the language there. Nothing can stand in your way. God, when you decide to do something, there's nothing that can stop that from happening. He says, I know that you can do everything. So my question is this, what has God purposed to do? If God's purposes will not be thwarted, what are God's desires and his purposes? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his desire. Now, we have a free will, and we can choose whether we'll accept or we will reject, but God's desire is that all would be saved. In Matthew 16, verse 8, God says, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Does this church here in Columbia Falls fall under that umbrella? I think it does. 
I think it does. And so my question is this. Can the God who both created this earth along with everything in it in six days with nothing but the power of his voice and who sustains every system within this universe, both small and great, and who keeps each atom firmly in place, can this God help us reach our community for Christ? Absolutely he can. He is supremely able. My God is so big, there's nothing my God cannot do. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. It's a beautiful passage here as we start, and we we aren't going to be able to look at it and do it justice. I'd encourage you to read through Jeremiah's prayer uh, as he's praying here in chapter 32. Uh, Starts in verse 16, um, and in verse 17, just notice how he starts. Ah, Lord God, just the reverence that you hear in his voice. Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. And here's this phrase again, and your stretched out arm. God's hand isn't short. Not in the days of Moses, not now in the days of Jeremiah. And folks, not in our days either. By your power and by your stretched out arm, there is nothing too hard for you. Nothing too hard for you. That's how he begins this prayer. By the way, that's a great way to start our prayers as we're talking with God, to remind him of his power, to remind us, of his power. Both are important. Well, as he prays, God begins to speak, and he, he rewords this statement. Look down in verse 27. It's, the voice is changing. It's not Jeremiah anymore. Now it's the Lord. He says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Here's the question. Is there anything too hard for me? That's a rhetorical question. It answers itself. And we're not going to look at the rest of the chapter, but God goes on to show Jeremiah what he was going to do that would demonstrate this power. It's going to start with judgment. God's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, the strongest king on earth at that time, to come in from Babylon and bring this nation, the nation of Judah, into captivity. It takes a big God to do that. Orchestrate the kings of the universe and make this all happen. Secondly, we see that he's big enough to bring the nation of Israel back to their homeland when their captivity is done. But not only that, number three, he's big enough to give them a new heart. Look with me down in verse 39. And God says, I will give them, I'll give Israel one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for the children after them. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good. What a beautiful passage. God says, I'm big enough to give them a new heart, a heart that will last for eternity. And my friends, my question for us is this. This God that's big enough to remove Israel from their land and to reestablish them again in their homeland after their sentence is served, a God that's big enough to ultimately change their hearts to love and honor him by means of an everlasting covenant, is this God big enough to still transform hearts and lives here in the Flathead Valley? Can God still work in the same way here in Columbia Falls? Folks, yes. Absolutely he can. Is there anything too hard for God? We answer that question with a resounding no. Because my God is so big, there's nothing my God cannot do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, moving into the New Testament. Luke chapter 1. 
I'll try to cover these next two quickly here. I told my wife one advantage of this is I could just you know, skip one and you wouldn't know the difference, but let's see how it goes. Luke chapter 1, power over natural conception. You know this story well. I don't have to spend a lot of time here. We read the story every Christmas, don't we? Gabriel comes to Mary. I think I'm in the wrong chapter here. Let me flip my page over. There we go. Gabriel comes to Mary, a young woman engaged to be married. He promises her that she was going to bear a child. She would conceive and have a son, and this son would be the Messiah. And she's somewhat bewildered by this comment and this statement, and we can understand that. And her question is, how can I bear a son? I'm still a virgin. I, I haven't known a man. And the angel goes on, and he begins to explain the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. <laughs> wow. And then he helps her faith a little bit by informing her that her cousin Elizabeth, who's incidentally at the same stage of life as Sarah, that we just looked back earlier in the book of Genesis, this Elizabeth is going to bear a son. In fact, she's already six months along. And then look down at verse 37. And notice what the angel says. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. With God, nothing shall be impossible. You have impossibilities in your life. God has a long track record of meeting the impossible. So the question quickly is this, can the God who supernaturally implanted the creator of the universe in the womb of Mary, stop and think about that. This God who somehow knit together eternal God and mortal man in a way that we can't comprehend, can that God not also do the impossible here within our church and within our lives? Absolutely he can. Because my God is so big, there's nothing my God cannot do. One more passage, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And here we're going to see God's power in the area of salvation. The story is the rich young ruler, and you may think as we begin this that it's kind of a strange passage to go to if I'm thinking about the power of salvation because this young man doesn't appear to get saved in the story. We see a wealthy religious man coming to Jesus Christ and asking him how he can get to heaven. And so Jesus reminds him of the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to go over the top of this story quickly. Jesus reminds him of the Ten Commandments, and the man honestly replies, I think he's sincere in saying, Jesus, I've sought to obey these commandments my whole life. Since I was a child, I've tried to do it. And I would think, assuming in that too, he's brought atonement for the times that he hasn't. But there was an issue here that went deeper than just the commandments, and Jesus saw that issue. He saw there was something in his life that was more important than than God. He saw the real issue, and so he says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Is that how we inherit salvation, by getting rid of everything we have? No, but that was the issue for this young man that was standing in the way of a relationship with God. And the passage goes on to say that he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, His money meant more to him than following Jesus. And then Jesus makes this statement. Let's look down in the passage a little bit here. The man went away sorrowful, and Jesus said in verse 23, Verily I say unto you, stop and listen up, a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I struggle putting thread through the eye of a needle. And the older I get, the more I've got to get it just right in my glasses in order to be able to thread that thing through. A camel through the eye of a needle? Now, we need to understand some things here about the, about the text. This was a common hyperbole in the days of Jesus. We understand what a, a hyperbole is, right? 
It's an exaggeration for emphasis, that type of an idea. Um, it was kind of born a, a trade-off, a, a play off of the Persian version of it to drive an elephant through the eye of a needle. Um, there are no elephants there in Israel, so they chose the largest animal they had, which was a camel. And Jesus is using that. It, it's a hyperbole. It's used for ex- exaggeration for purpose. And what Jesus was saying here is he was emphasizing how hard it is for people to set aside their wealth. How hard it is for people to set aside their intellect or their works or their doubts. How hard it is to humble themselves and come to God on his terms and not on their own terms. Well, the disciples hear this and they're bewildered. And notice their, their, their comment in verse 25. When the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, well, who then can be saved? In other words, it's impossible for somebody to be saved, just like it's impossible to bring a camel through the eye of a needle. And how does Jesus respond? In verse 26, he beheld them and he said unto them, Oh, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation of a soul is something that only God can do, but God can still do it. And the really neat thing is he's commissioned you and me to help him in that glorious endeavor. What a wonderful thought. So the question now is this, can the God who's big enough to pass a camel through the eye of a needle, can he still show mankind their need of a savior? Can he still convict them of their sin and help them grasp that they cannot do it on their own? Can he still open the eyes and turn them from darkness to light? Does God still have power to save lost sinners today? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Because my God is so big, there's nothing my God cannot do. I hope that's cemented in your minds. Folks, our God is not limited by age. He's not limited by numbers. He's not thwarted by the power of Satan. He's not bound by the natural laws that he created. He is still God, and he is still able. You know, folks, God has never encountered a heart, a heart so hard he can't soften it. God's never encountered a mind so set that he can't persuade it. And God's never encountered a will so stubborn that he can't break it. Whoever it is that you're praying for, that you're concerned about, God is still able to save that person. And that's a comfort to me. I hope that's a comfort to you. There's another passage, but I can't get into it because I'll, I'll, I'll lose my composure. Let me just go here as we close. Are you here today without Christ? <laughs> I know this message has been focused on us as believers and as a church family, but maybe you're here today without Christ. You don't know him. You still have to see God as a big God too. Will you surrender to him today? Oh, Jesus came into this world and died on a cross to save us from our sins. He paid the penalty for you and for me that we could be saved. If you don't know him, I'd love to talk to you about that. Would you trust him today? Maybe you're here today as a believer and you've got some pretty heavy impossibilities. Maybe you're struggling to believe that God is able. But folks, I just wanted to remind us today that the God we serve is a big God and he is able. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the same. He's still the God of the impossible. He just asks that we believe. And so my prayer, and I hope it yours as well, that God would increase our faith. 
I love that prayer in the, in the, in the scriptures. And, and the second one in Mark 9 is this man's crying out to God because God says, if you believe anything's possible, if you believe, he has sons wallowing there in torment. And Lord says, if you believe anything is possible, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's where we're at today. And we need to pray that God would help us in our unbelief. Have the faith that we need to believe this little children's song. That our God is so big, there's nothing our God cannot do. Father, I thank you for the truths we've looked at today. Lord, nothing complicated, nothing we don't already know. But God, just trying to reinforce the truths that we so often forget. God, increase our faith. Give us a childlike faith to get up on the refrigerator and jump off into your arms, knowing full well that you'll catch us. Give us the faith to believe that we can go out and share your word with people in our community and that there will be some that respond. Lord, it's hard. It's a scary endeavor. But your power is behind us. And it's you that does the work and not us. Father, you are such a big God. Help us to see that you are bigger than every one of our impossibilities. And Father, for that, I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.